Well, good morning again. Here we are at Philippians chapter 2, and I am torn. Yep, torn. Split right down the middle. Last time we talked about how Paul was torn between going to heaven and staying on earth. Heaven was better, he said, much, much better, but staying was more necessary for the saints' progress and joy in the gospel. You remember that? So I'm not torn about that, not leaving or staying. I'm good either way, but um, I am torn about Philippians 2. I mean, as a Bible teacher, a pastor, a pulpit person, I mean, you start reading Philippians 2 and right away it's full of practical and necessary wisdom about unity in the church, and that could be a great sermon. But this text also has one of the most theologically important chapters in the whole Bible about the person of Jesus, and that would be a great sermon, too. So which way should I go? I mean, I'm just torn. Now, you could make two sermons out of it, one practical and one theological, but Paul weaves these ideas so closely together, it's it's hard not to think it would be a terrible thing to separate them out like that. So what is a Bible teacher supposed to do? Go for it. Be brave. Do both. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Here we go. Our theme is the unity of the church, and our perfect example of how to achieve it is found in the most amazing miracle of all, the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So last week we saw Paul start focusing on unity in chapter 1, verse 27. He said, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one mind. When Paul is thinking of worthy conduct, that's what he's thinking about, at least in this particular day. He's thinking about unity. Why is church unity important? Because bickering and squabbling and backbiting and pride and envy are completely contrary to everything Jesus taught and his, of course, holy example. It's completely contrary to the new nature that we have in Christ. And such things like that, that squabbling and strife and uh, fighting within churches, that does great violence to the very purpose of the church in this world. A church, an assembly of Jesus' disciples, is to be a model of redemption to the world. We're the redeemed community, and we need to look like it. People should be able to look at Christians individually and also as a group and see something really wonderful, something rare. Now, yes, integrity is rare, morality is rare, and all those good things, but most of all is this spirit of love and unity. Jesus said, remember, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's John chapter 13, verse 35. He didn't stop at the word love. He didn't say if you have love. He said if you have love for one another. So it's our love in unity in the body of Christ that makes the world actually take notice. They will recognize from that that we are disciples of Jesus. Love does not show itself in pride, in strife, in jockeying for influence and harshness. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul lists among the deeds of the flesh enmity, strife, jealousy, 
outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Actually, a big part of that list relates to conflict, human conflict, and that's all sin. So church should not be a place for conflict, but it should reflect true Christian concord and unity. Now, before I jump in, I want you to notice something as we work through verses 1 through 8 today. The key to church unity is members having the right heart. Unity is not conformity. The mighty Warren Wiersbe said it this way, there's a big difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity is pressure from without to behave a certain way. Unity comes from the heart. In fact, many hearts, each individually having a Christ-like attitude within. Can you see the difference? I hope you can perceive the difference there. Some churches get impatient with achieving a Christ-like unity from the heart, so they opt for or kind of fall into uniformity. We will all be the same. That's how some play it. Leaders uh, in those situations kind of become the standard, and they're not allowed to be questioned. And expectations will be dictated from the top, and everyone will be measured by external um, standards that the church sets forth. How loyal are you? Do you ask questions? How much do you give to the church? What is your attendance like at every single church meeting we offered? Do you have the right kind of Bible? You know, there exist churches that say there's only one approved English translation in the eyes of heaven. Unfortunately, the one they picked is 400 years old, so it's a little bit of a struggle to follow sometimes. But if you use anything else they say but the King James Version of the Bible, then you you are a unity breaker, because that's our unity. No, that's not unity. See, that's pushing uniformity on people. You are imposing, in those situations, a form of external unity and vaunting yourself over other people who might prefer a different translation. So, of course, you can have lots of discussions and opinions about Bible translations. I love to interact on those issues. In fact, we have a translation issue today I'm going to talk about. But to break unity over that? No, that's not appropriate. There are many ways churches can impose uniformity in the place of unity. And some of you know that by experience. You probably grew up in a church like that. Of course, the Bible requires leaders to do definite things. They've got to uphold sound doctrine. They have to rebuke sin. They encourage holiness and fruitful living. That's the job of a church leader. Leaders should provide biblically-based wisdom. So we aren't talking about those things when we're talking about this. We're talking about a church culture that is um, externally focused. We're talking about man-made traditions. We're talking about a leadership style that imposes uniformity by a heavy-handed, arbitrary sort of leadership. So we will see in our text today that the true source of unity comes from the right heart. Now, Paul begins chapter 2 in a really interesting way. He focuses our minds on the good things happening at Philippi Bible Church. I don't know if that's what they called it, but the church in Philippi. Now, he begins in verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, there's a lot of ifs there, huh? Usually we think of if as 
conditional or uh, a supposition? Like, if this happens, then this might happen, or it could be, or it could not be. Uh, that's sort of what if, the word if suggests to us. But Greek grammar has um, more than one kind of if, and this kind is not an uncertain if. It's, it strongly suggests that what is being said is true. So there's a certain form for that, then you can recognize it in the Greek text. So it's, he's talking about something that's not in doubt. It's more like our word since, you know, since this is true. And uh, since the cat ate the mouse, we can put the traps away. That's different than saying, if the cat ate the mouse, we'll be able to put the traps away. See, But this is more confident than that. So the ifs of verse 1 are closer to that idea of since. It's describing things as they are in order to make a point. In fact, somebody said, this is not the if of doubt. This is the if of argument. And I like that. I think that really helps. So we do use if that way in our culture as well. So Paul is really saying, look at these things among you and in you. And he mentions four things. And the reader, as he goes through these four things, is, is supposed to think, the person that belongs to Philippian Bible Church, they're supposed to think, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, that's all true. That's true of us. That's how they're supposed to react, because he's assuming that. So let's look at the things individually. First, if there is any encouragement in Christ. And encouragement is that familiar word, parakletos, paraklesis, which means to come alongside. You know, the Holy Spirit was called by Jesus the paraclete, the comforter, the one who is called alongside to bring encouragement. So it's that friend or, or voice of support or blessing. And so the the... Paraclesis is, is that kind of encouragement that Christians give to one another. So Paul refers to the Philippians comforting one another in Christ, and he knows they do that. And they're going to say, yes, we do do that. The second thing he says, if there's any consolation of love, does the love of the brethren bring comfort? Are the Philippians loving each other in sorrow and in pain? Well, yes, they are. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? That's our word koinonia we talked about in chapter 1. Uh, koinonia is this uh, sharing in, this unity, this fellowship. Is there a mutual concern amongst the brethren prompted by the Holy Spirit? Yes, there is. And then finally, if any affection or compassion that is among the brethren. Yes, indeed. They would say there is that. So Paul wants the Philippians to think, yes, all of that is among us. We are those kinds of people. That's the kind of church that we have. We're not perfect, but those things are real in our midst. And if that is there, verse 2, then Paul says, the joy he has in them already for these good things can be full to the brim if they live in unity. So verse 2 is, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So they've already brought Paul all kinds of joy. He, he founded that church. They've done really well. They've supported him on the mission field, and they still are after he's been in custody for years, still supporting him, sending him funds and sending people to see him and make sure he's okay, taking him word of what's going on with them, and all of that's been going on. So he said in chapter 1, verse 4, that he has joy when he prays for them because he's not grieving over them. He's rejoicing over how well they're doing as a church. That could only be because he knows their true faith and sincere labor for Christ is real. 
He personally has felt their encouragement in Christ, the consolation of love, the koinonia he mentions in chapter 1, verse 5, that fellowship or participation in the gospel ministry. And their affection and their compassion is obvious through their constant support of him. He says in chapter 1, verse 7, that he has them in his heart. And in verse 8, that he longs for them with all the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul has a lot of joy in the Philippian church, but it's not 100% joy. It's it's a lot of joy, but there's at some level, there's something they need to fix to make his joy complete. So as far as his joy is concerned, there's some obstacle there. And with his joy, when he's writing them or thinking about them or praying, there's a tiny little bit of pain or a little bit of um, concern there. The, uh, this is a pastoral concern for his flock. And at some level, there's some kind of disunity going on at the church in Philippi. So Paul offers a a fourfold description of true unity to follow the four ifs in verse 1. So because those things are true, he says his joy will be complete by their being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So he really offers a, a very rich description of these personal qualities that are needed for unity, and every church member is to take these to heart and cultivate their Christian walk with these things. First is being like-minded, and it really just means the same mind, having the same mind. If the Bible is our uh, center, if it's the food that we take for our spiritual life, if it's what nurtures us and shapes us, there's going to be remarkable unity just in that. Uh, We often speak of like-minded churches, and we mean by that churches that share our convictions, our theological perspectives, that pretty much do things the way we do. They they see uh, the Lord and all of his work very much like we do. They read the Bible like we do. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about here within the church, to be like-minded. Now, you might be the type of person that thinks for himself. You might say, you know, I don't really like having to conform to everything. I like to think outside the box. Now, there's people like that, and that's okay if you're a Christian, if you don't treat God's Word that way. Like, you don't want to think outside the box and come up with your own wild ideas about things. That's not usually a, a wise way to go. You are bound by your faith to believe God and the things that He shares. And then you've got to think through that, uh, I like to be different thing, and see how that works with these this call to be like-minded, because that's that's actually a command here. Same love is number two. We should have the same love. This is the love Christians see in Jesus, in which the Spirit of God teaches us to have for one another. It's agape love. It's that love that is other people-centered. We need to have the same love. Number three, united in spirit. Actually, Paul doesn't use the word spirit here. He kind of invented a word as far as we know. It doesn't show up anywhere else, but it it means one-souled. So he uses more of the word soul than spirit here. The New King James translates it in one accord, which I like that. And the ESV says uh, in full accord. I think that's a good, uh, good way to translate it. That's the idea. So we're in full accord with each other, united in spirit, or one soul. Intent on one purpose is number four. Christians are profoundly one in Christ to serve him. That's what we're all about. You know, I just read um, today, the Barna Research Group came out with this new survey um, on church life in America. And they found that of Americans, only 18% of 
Americans believe that their universal purpose, their great purpose in life, is to know, love, and serve God. That's just what they say. So that would probably include people that aren't even Christians, that in some other kind of cults or something like that. 18% think that that should be their purpose in life. Now, 71% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. So that should shake you up a little bit. But fewer than 20% of them say that their purpose is to know God, love God, and serve God. That's very small. But that is our purpose. So you couldn't build unity around people that have some other purpose. We are to be intent on one purpose, which is the great commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, to be committed to the gospel, which is what Paul talked about in chapter 1. If a pollster called you up and asked you what was your purpose in life, what would you say? So if you didn't say my purpose is to love God, to know God, and to serve God, you've got the wrong purpose. Now, there's a lot of other purposes for living, your family and, um, you know, being happy. And that's what most people say, stuff like that. But that's not the ultimate purpose for a Christian. So if that's, if you have a different purpose, that's attacking unity right there. How can we be unified if you have a different purpose for your life than what the Bible calls you to? So church unity is built on a shared purpose to know, love, and serve God. So we are one in what we are committed to. Our fundamental perspective is one. Our love for God and his word, we share that. We share the same goals. So there's, there is this soul-level bond in Christ. At least I sure hope that that's true of us at Act in Faith. Of course, we're not all the same. And he's not saying we should all think the exact same thing about every topic all the time. Christians don't think the same about whether this lockdown is the best strategy in this pandemic and all this stuff that we live through. And the Bible doesn't say specifically what is best in this particular situation. It does give us a lot of... um, The Bible doesn't give us specifics about something like that. What it does give us is to govern our attitude as we relate to each other with regard to these different ways we might think, how we talk about it with each other, how we work on it together, these different problems that we might face. So Paul isn't um, talking about a bland sameness here. He's saying we take our unique perspectives and then we labor to weave them into a God-honoring, kingdom-living, gospel-centered life together as a church family. That's what we're supposed to do. And I know exactly what Paul's talking about because I see it all the time. I really do. As a pastor of this church, I can describe what Paul is describing because we have an elder board that practices this very thing. All of us on the elder board, staff and lay elders, are committed to unity. And we know what that means and what it looks like. And that means whenever we sit down to discuss something, we all have exactly the same opinion about what to do. So our discussions are really short. No, that's not right. That's not what it is. I fooled you. Not at all. We all have our own perspectives based on our unique life experiences, our training, our background, even our personalities. Sometimes maybe the mood we're in on a given day. So we have to work for unity because we never act in our church on a three to two vote or a four to one vote or anything like that. We only act when we're of one mind, when we're unanimous. So we sit down, profoundly unified, 
already on doctrine, on the authority of the Bible to guide us, on the importance of unity, on our love for Christ. We also already love each other. We appreciate each other's strengths. We are at least somewhat aware by experience of each other's weaknesses. And listen, because we have humble men leading, we are mostly aware of our own weaknesses. So we consciously work towards unity, recognizing that God is working through our different perspectives to bring us to a consensus. I wrote a rather sharp letter recently to point out how somebody that we were counting on had dropped the ball. It's not a person in our church. And I, and I thought to myself, maybe this is too harsh. So I sent it to the chairman of our elder board, and I said, Saul, what do you think? And basically he said, I can't argue with your facts, but your letter makes me angry. And I don't want to be angry. I don't want it to come across that way. It shouldn't come across that way. He says, why don't you cut out about 80% of it? So I totally rewrote it. And you know why I did? Because he was right. I, I needed that extra help and counsel. And then something in me told me to seek it. And I did. And, and uh, he was totally right about that. I was being carried away by my profound disappointment. And I had left love behind. So the kind of, that kind of thing can only happen on, on a board or in a church family by living out verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So, These are our orders from heaven. That's how we're supposed to be. First, self has to go, right? You may not regard yourself. You may not. You are are forbidden to regard yourself as the most important person in the room. You may have an important role to play that uh, God allotted to you, but you are commanded to regard other people as more important than yourself. This word in verse 3, selfishness, is also related to that idea of strife. It's, uh, the root word is the same. Fighting to be on top, uh, winning, uh, dominating, to exalt yourself. That's got to go. You can't have that. Empty conceit is uh, vain glory. I, I love that expression, vain glory. Empty glory, right? It refers to the utter meaninglessness of making your way to the top. All right, I defeated everybody. I'm on top. I'm ruling the roost. So, what does that get you? You've won. That's just pride. And pride is the root of selfishness. So, if you are that independent thinker guy and like being outside the box, that's fine as long as there's no pride in it. So, you got to make sure about that. If you, if you have that tendency, you need to make sure that that's not a prideful quality. So developing an attitude of selflessness is rooted in love, and love is always, in the Bible, by definition, others-oriented. It puts other people before self. That's what love is. You will naturally look out for yourself. You're going to do that because uh, that's how we're wired. But as a Christian, you are free to let God look out for you so you can use your energies to look out for other people. That's how it's supposed to work. You know how people say, well, someone's got to look out for number one, and they mean themselves as number one, right? Well, for a Christian, God is number one, and he will look out for you. Other people are number two, 
and you're somewhere down the list. So let's talk about humility of mind, that expression of Paul's. In the ancient Greco world, Greco Roman world, that was considered a bad thing. Humility of mind, lowliness of mind. That was like the worst quality you could have. These were proud people. That's why they built these great empires. But the Christians turned this into a virtue. They said, humility of mind. That's exactly what we want. That's how we should be. And it's important to grasp what that really is. Humility is not weakness, it's not being a doormat. Uh, Paul was not a doormat. Uh, but he described himself in first, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, as your servant for Jesus' sake. How does he begin his letters? A bondservant of Christ Jesus. He's a bondservant of Christ. He's a slave of Christ. He's a slave of the people he ministers to for Jesus' sake. Your servant for Jesus' sake. So humility is not cringing. It's not laying yourself on the ground on your back like some submissive dog to an alpha male kind of a thing. Humility is a strong person choosing to make sure that other people come before him or her. That's what humility is. Jesus was humble. Jesus was never weak. He used his strength and his wisdom and his power to help other people. That's what we mean by humility of mind. So he's literally thinking here of the good of others and not his own pleasures and wants. So we are sinful creatures, so we're always battling these conflicting desires. And as believers, we want to be like Jesus. So that sinful part of us that wants to please ourselves first, that has to be tapped down. That has to be mortified. You know what that word mortified means? Killed, right? We have to kill that part of ourselves. And it could just be vaunting your own importance over other people or just just doing what you want or just ignoring others. Uh, Jesus didn't have a sin nature, so he consistently loved and blessed other people. He was always thinking about their good. Even when he challenges people, he's thinking about their good. And Paul wants wants us to think about that with regard to this incredible decision Jesus made to save us from our sins. He is our incredible example. So verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So never, has there been such an example of humility and love? Someone so high, stooping so low, so very low, for the good of other people. If you want to understand the heart that leads to unity, the proper attitude of true humility, you look to the Lord Jesus. Now let's talk theology for a little bit. Verse 5 tells us all this amazing doctrine to follow is pointing us to a mindset. So keep that in mind. We cannot be like Christ in many different ways, right? We're not the creators of the world. We're not the rulers. We're not, we can't create uh, the universe. We cannot pay for the sins of ourselves, let alone other people. Only God can do that. Only God is so pure. But we can cultivate a mindset like Christ. 
putting others first. So that's what he's challenging us to do. Now, let's talk about this uh, doctrinal side. Verse 6 through 8 is very rich. It's uh, a lot of stuff's packed in here. But I can help you untangle it by pointing to several key words. So I want you to notice the word form in verse 6. And you'll see the word form again in verse 7. Paul uses it twice. And the Greek word is morphe. You hear morph a lot in science fiction stories nowadays, so that word sort of carried through. But um, the way Paul uses morph, which is translated form, is to describe the inner nature of something. That's pretty consistent with the way he uses it in the New Testament. Uh, of people, talking about people, it would be their inner nature or um, their personal nature. And Paul has another word he uses for what things look like on the outside, uh, how things appear. In fact, in verse 8, he uses the word schema for appearance, appearance as a man. Now, I got to take a little segue real quick. If you have an English Standard Version, a ESV, this is going to be very confusing because in that translation of the Bible, in verse 8, for some completely mysterious reason, the translators of the ESV decided to use the word form to translate schema as well as Morphe in the two previous verses. So you'll have form appear three times. But Paul deliberately uses two different words there, so you won't think form when you see when you get to verse 8, but they stuck it in there. So um, most Bible scholars that I know think it's important to make a distinction in terms, but those translators just didn't want to do that for some strange reason. So, so it should be verse 6, form, verse 7, form, verse 8, appearance, or something like that. But the ESV has form, form, form. But form does not appear three times. Morphe does not appear three times. Just so you know that. So Morphe is used twice in verse 6 and in verse 7. So let's look at those. Verse 6, Christ Jesus, what? Existed in the form of God. And then verse 7, he took the form of a bondservant, a slave. So from the creator, the judge, the king of all things, always and forever worshipped and adored and obeyed and served, he took the form, the inner disposition, the personal nature, the mindset of a slave. Slave. One who does another's bidding. He went from the owner of all to one who is owned and you can see it all through the Gospels. Jesus came to serve the will of his Father. My food, he said, is to do the will of him who sent me. How did he do that? How did he come to that place? Well, we have two really important verbs here in verse 7 and in verse 8. Verse 7, he emptied himself. Verse 8, he humbled himself. Now, this verb in verse 7 is a very important theological word, um, if you want to know a little bit about Christian doctrine, you should know the word kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis. Theologians use that word for this self-emptying of Christ. This is what happened at the incarnation. When God became man, he emptied himself. So it's this kenosis, this emptying, that Paul is talking about as an example of incredible humility here. Now, John, in his gospel, in John chapter 1, he says, the word became flesh, that's a way of saying it was he was Jesus was a true human being. And but Paul tells us a little bit more with this phrase he emptied himself. So the question is what does Paul mean by that? Uh what did Christ empty himself of? 
I think you can say two things that are true about it that encompass many things. You don't want to say he emptied himself of being God. That's just not true. Jesus said plenty of things to affirm his deity while he was on earth in his human form. He said, I am, right? Before Abraham was born, I am. He said a lot of things like that to affirm his deity. So he didn't stop being God, but he did give up first his eternal, infinite glory. Jesus was a man. He lived as a man. He was a working class man. He was a working class man in a country that was ruled by a foreign power, a foreign empire. And he was not, while he was a man, simultaneously being adored in heaven and sitting on a throne up there. That's not what he was doing. He was a man, a real man. He was limited. He was localized in terms of what he knew and what he experienced. It's an incredible miracle that God could do that, empty himself. Secondly, as a man, he did not use the divine powers that God has, that he has as God, outside of his role as God's servant. So as God's slave, slaves of the Father, he could use power, but he didn't do it on his own initiative. And I, and I think of it this way, his, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, he just did not use those things. He like put them on a shelf somewhere. And he would only access them when it served the purpose that the Father sent him for. So he would take them off the shelf as the Father directed or would approve. So he did what the Father wanted him to do, and he knew what the Father wanted him to do, and he knew what the Father wanted him to know. Jesus himself said he didn't know the day or the hour of his return. His omniscience was on the shelf, if you will. He wasn't using that. The Father did not reveal that to him as a human being, and he did not know that. So he was very much a man like us. But he didn't stop being God. He knew who he was, and he knew why he came, but he was not, in the incarnation as a human being, running the universe. Like when he laid down his head at night, he went to sleep. He wasn't like, oh, I wonder what's happening on Jupiter today. He, that's, he didn't know. He was a human being. So it's the greatest miracle, God becoming man. And it's the most beautiful miracle because God became a man for us. He stooped. He came down. He lived here as one of us. Paul tells you what Jesus set aside in verse 6. He set aside being equal with God. Never doubt that Jesus is anything less than God himself, because it says it right here. He was equal with God in all things, all attributes, all honor. The Greek word here for equal is um, isos. You know where we see that word? I was trying to think of where we see that word. When I was in school, we learned about isosceles triangles. You know what an isosceles triangle is? Two sides, at least two sides of it are the same. So Jesus was equal with God. He was the same as God, equal with him. That's Paul's word here, isos, equal. So Jesus did not cling to that equality, but emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of death. And Paul says, even death on a cross, the cruelest death that men knew. And you know, Paul, as he's writing this letter, is actually facing 
sentencing. It's coming up in his life soon. And he was well aware that his own fate might be execution, but it would not have been crucifixion. Paul was a Roman citizen, and crucifixion was so awful that one of the benefits of being a Roman citizen, no matter how bad you were or what crimes you committed, they would not crucify you. You were exempt from that. So church history says Paul had his head lopped off, which is probably true. That wasn't right after this, but later. But um, he, you, a Roman citizen would not be crucified. Jesus didn't even have citizenship in the empire in which he lived. That's how humble he was. So when Paul says, even death on a cross, he viscerally knows what that looks like. He'd seen it, and he knew he didn't ever have to face it. So Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself to save you, even on a cross. The Bible says, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He didn't humble himself to put on a show. He didn't humble himself to visit the humans and see what it's like for them. He did it because only by doing this could the justice of God against our sin be satisfied. Only by doing this could we be reconciled to God. So God the Son lowered himself, and there's no analogy or comparison that I can think of to capture it. You know, if I said, that's like me becoming an ant, well, okay, but God lowering himself to take on human flesh, to be born into this world, is far, far greater than it's far, far greater in what he forsook than what I would forsake to become an ant. I mean, because he's infinite God, and I'm still a limited creature. I'm a wonderful creature made in the image of God, but me becoming an ant or a bug or an insect or something like that is not as big, it's not even anywhere close to the kind of humiliation that Jesus experienced by becoming a human being. So it's a far, far greater thing that he forsook than what we might forsake to become something lower than ourselves. And it's far, far more grim what he embraced. He carried the curse of our sin, the curse of God's curse on all the sin of the world. He bore the wrath of God on sin. And if he did that for us, and here's the practical point, can't we, learning from him, simply lay down self and pride and ego to serve other people. That's the most Christ-like thing you can do. And in a church family where many people are doing that, you're going to have a unified church, and people will know that we're followers of Jesus because of that unity, because of that humility. It's just sin that corrupts us and turns us into selfish, foolish people. So like him... We need to regard others as more important than ourselves and confess sins that are self-centered or arrogant or proud. Let's do that. Let's do that together as a church family, always having that in mind. And when somebody wants to correct us or point out some area where we need to humble our pride, we should say, you're right. I, I am, I'm going to work on that. Well, the humiliation of Jesus is not the end. It's actually the beginning of a new kingdom 
of righteousness and peace, and he's going to reign in glory. And we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Our God, let us be like our great Lord, the King of all things who became a slave. Help us pour out our pride. Empty ourselves of the glory of having others see us as wonderful to praise us or honor us. May we have your great purpose in our hearts always. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Stay safe, focus on the Lord, and we'll see you next time.